0: problem that many people who are outside of the church have with Christianity, and uh, here it is. It said, before you demand that Christianity be taught in schools, maybe you should demand that it be taught in churches. (laughs) So before you go out and you go and try to shove what you believe uh, down other people's throats, why don't you take some time and to attend to teaching it to your own people? And I think behind that quote is a dissatisfaction that many people have in our culture with the way in which uh, Christians are seen or understood or experienced. And you can't blame people, you know, when you look at the scandals, the hypocrisy, the nastiness, the infighting, the vying for political power, the vanity and the celebrity. It's difficult sometimes to square what's presented out there in the culture about Jesus with actually the thing that Jesus is about in this world. And so what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we have been seeking to be schooled and the very fundamentals and the basics of what Christianity is about at its very core. And we've been doing that through a little letter that the Apostle John wrote to a church in Ephesus that's called 1 John. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to be hearing John basically school us in what is at the very heart of Christianity. It is the fundamental. It's the very basic thing that you and I need to get, namely, John is going to talk to us today about the ethic and the theology of love. You know, Jesus said, love stands at the heart of everything. And John is going to teach us here what it means to be a community that is marked out by love and what it means when we even talk about God being a God of love. And so I want to invite you to join with me as we attend to what John is saying in this text underneath three headings. Uh, Number one, I want you to observe uh, the origin of love. Second, uh, the historical manifestation of love. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at the ethical demand to love. And notice uh, the text begins with John talking to us about the very origin of love. And what I want you to see is that he grounds the ethic of love in the character of God. Verse seven, beloved, let us love One another. There's the ethic of love. Why? For love is from God. Love finds its originating source from God. Or we could put it like this you know, there's a lot of beautiful things in this world we inhabit. Uh, I love to swim in a tropical coral reef and just take in the majesty of all of that brilliant colors. And I love uh, to hike. Uh, to a mountain vista, and behold the beauty of creation. And I love a sunrise, but I think you'd agree that the most beautiful, the most moving and stunning thing to behold in all of creation is when human creatures, when people love and at great cost to themselves, pour themselves out to lift up and to support and to help and to bless and to care for others. There's almost nothing more beautiful in all of creation than the practice of love. Amen? And what John is telling us is that the very originating source, the very fountainhead, the spring that feeds all of the other streams of love in this world ultimately is God himself. He says love is from God. But then he presses this further. He says, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. It's as if John is saying, like begets like. You know, I have an orange tree in my backyard, and it produces oranges. And an armadillo produces armadillos. And um, when the powerful, life-giving love of God is at work in an individual's life, it produces the practice of love. And the person who doesn't love gives evidence that they actually haven't experienced that life-giving experience of love. And notice John now drills this down to the very bottom. He says, why is this that the ethic of love stands at the very heart of Christianity? He says this, he says, the reason why this is so is because God himself is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. But what does it mean to say that God is love? You know, at least it means that uh, loving isn't God's day job, you know? It's not what he does part of the time and then goes to sleep and then, you know, oh, yeah, I've got to do some more loving tomorrow. No, love is who God is. Uh, You could say that before there was any human creatures that showed any love, in fact, before there were any human creatures at all, before there was anything at all, there was God, and God even then was love. And, you know, when human history runs its course and God brings it to its intended end, in the end, God will be there as the God who is love. And in the messy middle right now, God remains the God who has always been and forever will be love. God is love. But what does that mean? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to say that God is unassailable, you know, sovereign power, or maybe God is knowledge, you know? God is, is all-encompassing, infinite knowledge. But, but, but love, what does it mean to say that God is love? And to answer that question, I, I want to do a dense, brief, deep dive into the doctrine of the Trinity. Are you guys ready on Sunday morning at 1115 for a deep dive into the doctrine of the Trinity? Now, just... Uh, just uh, To let you know, you know, just stay with me through this, and there's a little reward I'm going to give you at the end of this little time, okay? Um, So let's talk about the Trinity. You know, the Trinity is one of those subjects that many of us don't like to think about or we have a hard time thinking about. Uh, If you have a friend and you're sharing the faith, you hope they don't ask you to explain it. You know, if you have children, you're praying that they don't ask about it. You know, and um, and a lot of us, you know, we don't we don't get the math. You know, I mean, I don't get any math. You know, but it's spent. You know, one plus one plus one equals three, and then some clever people say, no, it's one times one times one equals one. You know, but that actually doesn't work that well either. And uh, we wonder, is this some kind of, like, incoherent, you know, logical fallacy that's built within, you know, Christian faith? Like, what what do we mean? Well, let's note a few things. First, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is not bad math, and it's not logically incoherent. Because what Christians have always professed about the Trinity, and what the Bible teaches, is that God is three in a different sense that God is one, that God is one in a different sense in which God is three, that um, God is one in essence, but God is three in person. And so the the divine essence, the divine being is one. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and we should worship the one true God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is one divine essence that is God. And yet, the one divine essence of God exists in an eternal community of three distinct persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are co existent and co eternal and co equal and who love and glorify and delight in one another. And the, 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 the the confession of the Christian faith is that God, who is one, is also forever a Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and here is infinite joy and love and communion. There's a famous uh, uh, 14th century icon that sort of gets at the idea of the Trinity. Uh, you know, Christians throughout history have sought to kind of like capture this idea in um, uh, pictures and in metaphors and in images. And this is a 14th century icon from Andrea Rublioff. And the symbolism is this. It's called the Old Testament Trinity because it represents the three visitors uh, to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, which identify themselves as God. On the left is God the Father, whose robes are a mixture of color, difficult to describe or define, even as the Father eludes definition. And in the center is God the Son who is reaching for a chalice, a reminder of the cup of suffering that he will endure. And the Holy Spirit is dressed in the color of sky and water and is touching the table even as the Spirit touches our lives. And all three, get this, they are all at the same table indicating that the divine life is an infinite feast of joy and love and communion. Now, some have said, well, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, and I I can remember this when I was a kid, you know, um, I remember Jehovah's Witnesses visited me one time, and they said, you know, that doctrine of the Trinity stuff, that was some 4th or 5th century Hellenistic philosophy, some Greek philosophy that was incorporated into Scripture. That's where that came from. Is that where this doctrine came from? Where did the doctrine of the Trinity come from? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity came out of both Scripture as well as experience. The doctrine of the the Trinity came out of Scripture going all the way back in the Old Testament. I mean, think with me for a moment about the story of Israel. And what is the story of Israel? Well, the author and the sovereign ruler of Israel's story is God. And so who is God? Well, he is the author of our story. But then who is God? God also in Israel's story is the divine wind that breathes life over creation and brings fruitfulness and fertility. God is the divine wind that clothes God's prophets with power so that they speak. And who is God? Well, God is not only uh, the the author of the story and the life-giving wind in the story, God is also an agent and an actor in the narrative. You know, he is the Shekinah glory that dwells in the tabernacle. He is the cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night that leads Israel. He is the flame in that burning bush. He is there, tangible and concrete with Israel in her story, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, we know this not just through Scripture, but also in our experience of worship and prayer, we experience God as Trinity. What is the goal of prayer but to engage with God, the goal of worship, but to glorify God. But who is moving you? Who is prompting you to pray and to worship but God? And who is enabling you and and providing the road and the bridge whereby you can actually approach God but God? And here is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray to the Father by the Spirit in the Son. And so how do we know this? Well, we know this from scripture and from experience. Well, somebody says, yeah, but this is still kind of hard. Can you give me some illustrations, you know, that can help me wrap my mind around the Trinity? And, and the church has, has, has tried a few. There's been the, uh, the, the classic illustration of the three-leaf clover or maybe the egg. You know, there's the shell, there's the yolk, and then there's the white, or there's H2O. It's steam and liquid and ice, And almost each one of these, uh, almost all of these illustrations wind up taking you on a road to some heresy that was, uh, you know, castigated by the church some 1,500 years ago, you know, so, you know, for example, you know, the three-leaf clover, it falls apart because Jesus, for example, is not one-third of God, Jesus is holy God. And the Spirit is holy God. And the Father, of course, is holy God. They're not one-third God. They're full God. And God doesn't exist in modes like now ice, and then he transforms, and now steam, and now, you know, water. No, the, the, the persons of the triune God coexist together. And so there's a lot of bad illustrations, but there's one illustration that for me stands out as a good one. And it has stayed the test of time. It goes all the way back to the 5th century where St. Augustine wrote a book on the Trinity. How are you guys doing right now? Just checking in. We just, we just moved to St. Augustine, the 5th 4th 5th century, book on the Trinity. But in this book, he gives an illustration of the Trinity. And he says this. He says, when you see love, you see a trinity. He says, when you see love, you see a trinity. He says, there is the one who loves and then there is the beloved, the object of love who receives and responds to the love. And then he says, there is the love that exists between the lover and the beloved, which itself almost becomes its own third thing. And of course, in a marriage relationship, it literally becomes a third thing in a child, perhaps, that comes into the world. And so he says, when you see love, you see a trinity. You know, and C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, he connects this idea to John's claim in 1 John 4 that God is love. And he says this, He says, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God were a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. In other words, if God is not love in his very essence and being, and there's not persons within the Godhead to love and receive love, that is not fullness of love within God's self, then maybe God created because he was lonely and there was some lack or deficiency in God that we make up. But you know, within uh, our understanding of God, God has no lack or deficiency that humans make up. God is fullness. He is infinite joy and infinite delight and infinite love within God's self. We don't add anything to God. You say, well, why did God create us? Because his love is an outpouring kind of love. And he, as an overspell of God's fullness, he brought us into being. He donates us to our existence out of his love to be objects of his love. When you see love, you see a trinity. You know, um, I think probably the the best place to go in Scripture where this is, it's just crystallized in one image is in the baptism Of Jesus. And you know, in the baptism of Jesus, what do you see? Well, you see the incarnate eternal Son going down into the waters of baptism identifying with humanity by entering into ultimately what will be God forsakenness and death and darkness. He doesn't need to go there, but he goes there to identify with his people as an act of obedience and love to his father. And then he comes up out of the waters of baptism. And what happens in that moment? The heaven is ripped open and the spirit of God descends in the form of a dove And the Father speaks this word, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in that moment, we have crystallized before us, almost like a picture of what has been going on from all eternity past, a window into this sacred mystery of infinite joy and delight, the Father delighting over the Son, pouring out love and blessing and benediction over the Son. The spirit, as a a tangible expression, coming and clothing the son and driving him out into the wilderness while he'll fast and pray, where he will offer his life back up to his father in devotion and service and love. And here's a window into the life of God. But here is the point John is making in our text. He's saying, look, at the heart of ultimate reality... The very originating source of all things, as well as the love that exists between the human community when we see it. At the heart of ultimate reality is not sovereign power or infinite knowledge, but love, a dynamic, infinite, pulsating life of love and joy, a love that did not need but graciously willed our existence. How are you guys doing now? That's good news, isn't it? Okay, well, you guys did good, so um, now you get your reward, puppies. Um, <laughs> and one more. So, John, <laughs> back in our text... He's talking to us about the originating source of love, but then he moves on from the origin of love, the originating source of love, to the historical manifestation of the triune love of God. Look at what he says in verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want you to notice three words in, this, in these two verses. Notice the first word, this word, manifest. He speaks about the love of God becoming manifest and known to us. You know, oftentimes it's hard to know that God loves you. You know, because sometimes what we do is we look at the circumstances of life we're walking through, and sometimes we determine based upon the kind of junk we are enduring or the abuse that's been inflicted on us, we draw conclusions about God from the, from the junk that's happened to us, don't we? And what John is saying is there is a different place to look. Look. There, there was a place where God's love became manifest. It became concretized. It was revealed to us, and it was revealed in the Father sending the Son into this world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or we could put it like this. You know, back when um, my kids were little, I remember we had this this fairy story that we would read to them about a princess who lived in these palaces and had all of these jewels and riches. But from time to time, the princess would wander off into the streets and go among the poor and care for them and bring them little blankets. But when she did that, she would disguise all of her princessness. Is that a word? Her queenliness. I don't know. Her majesty. She would disguise it in these shrouded robes. And sometimes I think we talk as if the incarnation and the death of Christ on the cross and Christ's own weakness and suffering was in a way God taking his majesty and in some way hiding it and and shielding it. You know, we even sing in that great Christmas hymn, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, as if God's glory is veiled in the person of Jesus. But John wants us to see just the opposite, It's not that God's glory and his majesty is veiled in the incarnation and the death of Jesus. This is where God's love is manifest to humanity. This is where God's glory is put on display or put it like this, we've said it before. Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God's true self. Jesus is the most of God you will ever hope to see. He is the exact image of his person, the full radiance of his glory. If you want to know what God is like, John says, look at Jesus. And when you look at the Father sending the Son into the world, what do you see? You see love being put on full display. But notice what John is saying. He's not just acting as if the the giving of the Son or the death of Christ is the revelation of simply the love of Jesus for us. Jesus did say greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for us. Surely out of the depths of his love for us, he did that. But John here is talking about the revelation, not simply of the love of the person of Jesus. He is talking about the revelation of the love of God who acts the Father and the Son. And a little bit later in verse 13, it's gonna be through the Holy Spirit who acts to bring about our redemption. You know, I, I came across this uh, image this week. This is actually from a basilica in, from the 13th century, and it's a portrait of the crucifixion. And it's fascinating because in this, you have Christ dying on the cross. You have the passion of Christ. And then you have the descent of the Holy Spirit. But then you see it's set against the backdrop of the red and the blue, which if you pan that picture back a little bit, it becomes an image of God the Father being involved in the events of the crucifixion. Or we could put it like this simply, the triune God worked in his love for our salvation. The Father sent the Son, why? Notice what he says, to bring us life through him. He, 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 he comes into this world so that we might know the life of God, or put it like this. You know, you remember I showed you the image of uh, the the Trinity sitting around the table, and it's a portrait or an image of that infinite feast, that infinite joy, that infinite delight and love that, that, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity past, their life, this fellowship, this feast of joy. And John says, the Son was sent into the world to invite us into that life with God. The Son came in, and then he goes on a little bit further, and he says this, he became the propitiation for our sins so that we might know this life of God. Or we could put it like this. You know, you think about these different moments in the life of Jesus. Moment one, Jesus is being plunged underneath the waters of baptism. And he comes up and we hear that voice of love speaking, that eternal benediction, the father over the son, my son in whom I am well pleased. And then you fast forward down to the end of Jesus's life and ministry, where he's on the cross. And as he is hanging crucified, he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you move from this space of ultimate acceptance and love with the Father to plunging, here, the Son going into the very depths of God forsakenness and what is happening in that moment. How is it that the eternal Son somehow enters into God-forsakenness and feels forsaken by the Father. And it's because in that space, Christ stepped into the place that you and I deserve. He stepped into our place of God-forsakenness. He bore our curse and our shame. He bore judgment. He, he, He brought it all to an end in himself, and he took our space those who are condemned so that we who are condemned can be set free and enter into his space, which is a place of acceptance and love as, as a child of the Father entering into the divine fellowship. Is it just me or is this the best news that's ever been told in, in the cosmos? John says, Here is God's love on display. It's manifest before us, it's concretized. You know, God didn't love us in sentiment, He didn't love us in word. He became flesh and blood, He became touchable and killable so that his body might be broken, his blood might be shed, so that we can be forgiven and set free and so that we can enter into this spot at the table. So after announcing this good news that blows all of our minds to us, John closes it by moving from the origin of love to the the historical manifestation of love, and he closes off by talking about our ethical obligation to love. And he says this, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says if God has borne a great cost to work and will our good, then there ought to be stories within this community where we're bearing costs and we're enduring stuff for the good of one another. We're opening up our homes and our lives and our ears, space in in conversations and, and places at our table for people who are on the outs to come in so that they might be blessed and encouraged and built up and loved and cared for. We ought to be preeminently a community that's marked out by love and joy and patience and kindness, and goodness, and self-control. You know, among us, just stories of all of that bubbling out. You know, we're not envying or seeking our own or boasting. But no, this is a community of radical generosity, and hospitality, and kindness, and compassion, and empathy, and love. Like, we're just embodying that. John says, if this is how God has loved us, If God is the generative, originating source of love, then how much should those who are born of God, who have been redeemed by love, embody and reenact this love in their life together? And then he says this, and this is surprising. He says, notice it says, um, one has ever seen God. Do you guys see a typo up? Just a little pause. The pastor made a typo. Enneagram ones, just take a deep breath. It'll be all right. So he says, no one has ever seen God. It's interesting, John has used that phrase before. In John 1, verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God. But he says, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has disclosed him or revealed or exegeted him to us. God puts, or Jesus puts on full display the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible. So John says, no one has ever seen God, but when you look at Christ, you see what God is like. But notice what he says here. He says, no one has ever seen God, But he doesn't go to Jesus, here he goes to us, and he says, if we love one another, God abides in us or remains in us or is at home in us, and his love is perfected in us. And I think what John is getting at there is that when we love one another well, we put on display before a world what the invisible God is like. In other words, Christ Church, as we move forward together into the future as a community, what is going to cause us to stand out as a witness to Jesus? As a community that is marked out by this new creation, this new life, this kingdom of God that has come to birth, what what is going to be a witness to our surrounding neighbors and friends and family members and co-workers how is the church gonna stand out as a witness in this, in this culture we're in? It's not by having a more shrill voice than our neighbors who are on social media. It's not by vying for and grasping for political power. It is when the church embodies in our life together this radical ethic of costly, sacrificial, self-giving love, that works and wills the good of the other. Now, how will we find the power to become this kind of community? You know, John, a little bit later, he says, look, he says, we love God because he first loved us. Like, remember, the originating source of this kind of love together, it doesn't doesn't begin in your own heart and life. So many of us, you know, sometimes, do you ever have those moments where you're just sitting next to somebody and they're annoying you? You don't even know, they're just like, they're just obnoxious to you. Do, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you have like other, are there people that just grate against you at times? You know, and you just find like somebody bumps into you, they cut you off, and, and what, what comes out of you is not, oh, bless you, we love you. <laughs> what comes out of you is, you know, some vitriol and darkness, you know? Or am I the only one? Somebody hurts you and you just want to hurt them back or you just want to see them hurt, don't you? Like the originating source cannot be with our own hearts. We need salvation and love and mercy outside of ourselves to break in and transform us. Next week, we're going to get back into this text and talk a little bit more about the transforming power of this love. But today, we're going to close together at the Lord's Supper. And so I want to invite our band to come up. And let me just say a couple words about what we are going to do. So you should have received the Lord's Supper or the bread and the cup when you walked in. And if you didn't, you can just go ahead and lift up your hand and our servers will come and they'll make sure that you get the bread and the cup. You know, there's somebody right over here. You know, one of the, I think, the stunning things about this practice. You know, for as paltry as these elements that we share in every week are, and these are paltry elements, aren't they? I mean, that little foam thing that's developed in some factory, you know, laboratory somewhere that we call bread, you know, and that tasteless juice. um, You're like, no, it has a taste. It just tastes bad. I know, I know. Um, For as paltry as these elements are, they take us back to the most breathtaking reality. You know, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he shared a meal at table with his disciples. In the ancient world, the people who you shared your food with were everything. They were in, they were family. And Jesus says, the one practice I want the church to keep going on about the one ritual practice that the church has to keep doing every single age that the church lives on into is this practice of sharing at the bread and the cup. Why? Because fundamentally, what it means to be a Christian is to be welcomed at the table of Jesus. It is to be brought into the family of God through the work of Jesus Through his broken body and shed blood, he says, you belong to me. You have a seat at my table. You're here. And he welcomes us into this place. And so even as we share in this practice together, the father who sent the son has sent his spirit to his church so that even in this practice right now, the spirit of God might be active in us to affirm in us that we belong, that we've been purchased, that the the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, that love that became tangible and touchable has come among us so that we can be healed and brought in. And so as the band sings over us a song that's really a prayer uh, drawn from the, the, a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi that God would make us his instruments of his love in this world. We go out into the world as instruments of love only out of a deep and abiding experience of the reality of God's love for us It's living and active in Christ. Hold on to those elements and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking together. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we prepare to share in the bread and the cup that you would move among us by your Spirit and that you would reassure us that we belong to you. That these tangible elements that your son Jesus gave to us, I pray, God, that they would seal our hearts once again with this reality that we belong, that we're rescued and healed and redeemed by your love. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.